Let's open with a word of prayer. Our great God, we do come before you humbly now, acknowledging that you are great and mighty and majestic, worthy of all praise, seated on your throne, controlling all that takes place in your creation. Father, for these things, we are indeed grateful. Lord, thank you for the body of Christ that we can come together freely at this time and look into your word. Pray that you would guide our minds and our hearts, that your spirit would illumine us, that we might understand the truth. Lord, that we would get it right so that you might be glorified. Lord, that we would incorporate these things into the way that we think about our current world and all that's taking place. May you be honored and praised by everything that's done in this place this morning. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. This is week number 37 in the book of Daniel. We're over in chapter 9, and for the last really three weeks, we've looked at the opening verses, first 19 verses of this chapter, in which we see the prayer of Daniel. The occasion is that Daniel is reading uh, the book written by Jeremiah, and he comes across the passage that says that Judah would be taken into captivity for 70 years. And so he reflects and understands that it's been 67 or 68 years since that first captivity where he was taken off as a young boy. And so he begins to pray. And we looked over at Leviticus 26 to see why would Daniel come before the Lord with this type of prayer that he begins to pray. And I believe it's because Leviticus 26 informed him how to pray, that after the curses had been pronounced, in that chapter 26 of Leviticus, there's a set of blessings. If the people are obedient, there's a set of curses. If the people are disobedient, and those curses had been exacted almost verse by verse against the Jewish people. And so Daniel, understanding that, after those curses comes a passage that says, if the people will humble themselves and pray, that God will remember his covenant with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham. And so Daniel does just that. He goes before the Lord humbly. He begins to pray. He confesses his own personal sins. He confesses the sins of his forefathers. He confesses the sins of the nation. And then he boldly, because this is based out of Leviticus 26, begins to ask God to act. And he asks his, his prayer to God is threefold. He asks him to restore the city, really the mountain, but that would be where Jerusalem would be. He asked him to restore the sanctuary, and he asked him to restore the people. And so Daniel is coming before the Lord really pleading, reminding God of what he said back in Leviticus 26, and then asking him to act according to it as Daniel does what Leviticus 26 says, which is <clears throat> be humble, confess your sins, pay the price 
for your sins, which was 70 years of captivity. And so <clears throat> there we have Daniel boldly going before God and voicing this prayer. So this morning we'll begin to look at God's answer to this prayer. So we'll pick up in verse 20 of chapter 9 of Daniel, and I just want to read 20 through 23, which really doesn't give in, get into the answer, but it gets us ready for the answer. So in verse 20 of Daniel 9, now while I was, still, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, in presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come, now, come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Okay, so Daniel's still praying. He's been praying for quite a while, and we, we've walked through his prayer, but Daniel does a nice job here in verse 20 of kind of summarizing it for us. You notice he says that he was still praying and he was confessing his sin and the sin of his people. And if we went and looked at it, actually what he said in his prayer, the sin of the forefathers, meaning all those who come before him and who had sinned, not just the present Israel, who clearly had sinned, but he prays for them, for himself, and for all the forefathers who came before him. Because for 150 years, maybe a little longer than that actually, Judah had been going through a series of good kings and bad kings, and good kings and bad kings. And there were horrible abominations before God until finally the sin got so bad that God sent Nebuchadnezzar in to destroy the city, destroy the people, to destroy the temple. And so those are the things that need to be restored. And you notice that Daniel says that he was praying for the holy mountain of my God. So that would be everything that we've talked about. The holy mountain would include Judah. It would include Jerusalem. It would include the temple, and then obviously in order for those things to flourish, you've got to have people. So instead of going through all the details that we looked at, Daniel just says, I was praying for the holy mountain so that God would come and do what he said he would do in Leviticus 26 and restore everything. So I think Daniel understands well. You remember we, we talked about this, that Daniel was raised during the reign, he was born and raised during the reign of Josiah the king, the greatest king toward the Mosaic law that ever ruled in Judah. And so he learned Leviticus 26, part of the Pentateuch, when he was a child. And he knew what it said. 
And now here he comes and he prays according to what he learned in his youth. And, you know, that's why Daniel, when at the very beginning of the book, when he's offered all the meat of the king and he refuses to eat all that stuff, the only reason he did that because of when he had been born and what he had learned when he was a, a child. If God had not orchestrated such that Josiah was king, Daniel wouldn't have known any of that. He'd have been just like any other renegade rebel. But God in his grace and in his plan had Daniel to learn all these things and then now to act accordingly. So here comes Daniel and he's praying for the mountain of Jerusalem. And you notice in verse 21, Daniel's still praying. Okay, it's come to the time at the end of the verse of the evening offering. Now, it's a little different than I think of evening. Um, there are two offerings that are prescribed at the end of the book of Exodus. I think it's Exodus 38. And it would be that two lambs would be sacrificed every day, one in the morning, one in the evening. The morning sacrifice would have been uh, at the third hour, which according to the way the Jews count, they start at 6 a.m. and they end at 6 p.m. And that's the day. And then they pick up at 6 p.m. and go to 6 a.m. and that's the night. So you have 12 hours of each. And so the morning sacrifice would have been at the third hour, which would have been 9 a.m. The evening sacrifice would have been at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., so not what I really think of the evening, but nevertheless, that's when they would offer the sacrifice, and it took a while. You had to um, sacrifice, you had to uh, have the fire going, you had to burn the sacrifice, all those things that were required by God according to his prescription. And so Daniel probably... And, and by the way, the, the ninth hour, you'll remember, that's the hour when Jesus Christ died. When the evening sacrifice was being prepared, when they were slaying the lamb so they could offer the evening sacrifice on that Passover day, Jesus Christ died in the ninth hour. It says the ninth hour struck and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he breathed his last. So God orchestrating everything, the timing, the night trial, the morning of abuse, the actual crucifixion uh, during the morning sacrifice, the death of Jesus Christ at the, sixth hour, at the ninth hour after having hung on the cross. And so God orchestrating all these things. And so Daniel's praying. It's 3 p.m., you can just imagine that if Daniel was going to come before the Lord in sackcloth and ashes, humbly asking God that he probably prepared the day to do just that. So he probably started somewhere between 6 and 9 a.m. So Daniel's been praying all day long. And so he says, I'm wearied um, because, I mean, he's pouring out his heart to God for over six hours. And and he's passionate about it, and he's remembering these things, and he's praying, and, Dan, and while he's praying, still voicing his prayer, I guess he was going to go on, uh, who knows how long, Gabriel steps in and interrupts him, 
He says, while I was still speaking and praying, here comes Gabriel. And he interrupts Daniel. Now, you notice how Daniel describes him in verse 21. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening hour. So Gabriel stands before Daniel, and Daniel recognizes him. And you remember, turn back over to chapter 8 and verse 15. Daniel's reaction this time is different than it was last time. 8.15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the, whole, the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he knew his name, because God, standing over the waters, really between the banks would mean in the midst of the waters, right? So God, in the midst of the waters, calls out to Gabriel and says, tell Daniel what this is all about. Give him an understanding. And so Daniel, if you remember, petrified when Gabriel walked up to him. I mean, he looks like a man, but look at Daniel's response in 8.18. While he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. All right, back up just before that, verse 17, I was frightened and fell on my face. And while he's frightened and falls on his face, he goes into a deep sleep. Not because he's tired, but because the vision's going to continue. And so his response this time is very different because Daniel had made him stand up and they had this conversation in the vision of chapter 8. Well, now Gabriel comes before him and he says, I recognize you. You're the man, he's an angel, who told me about the previous vision. And it's been a few years, and it's been eight years. And Gabriel appears to Daniel again, and he recognizes him. And so he doesn't fall down frightened. He's not terrified. He knows that Daniel's there for a reason. Daniel is extremely wearied, but you'll find people who debate about this, okay? And, you know, I, I won't debate about it, but I'll tell you what they say. There are some who say that Daniel was in full consciousness while this was happening. He's tired, but he's not asleep, and he's not having a vision. We'll, we'll talk about that in the, at the end of this passage. But he's fully conscious, and Gabriel is standing there, and they're having conversation. Then there are other people who say that this passage implies, because it does speak of a vision, that Daniel is not conscious, that he again is so wearied that he falls into a sleep, and he has a vision. Well, if he does, I've question where is the vision 
because we're not given what I would call a vision in this chapter. So I tend to prefer that Daniel is fully conscious, that Gabriel appears to him face to face, and they're both standing there. Now, I could be wrong. And the guys who think he's asleep and having a vision could be right. But I don't see that in the passage. Um, I think he's awake. Gabriel somehow comes to him. And then Daniel begins to address him. He begins to address Daniel. Doesn't really matter. No question. No question. Um, we have the word of God from the voice of Gabriel, whichever way it goes. But the only reason I mention things like that is that you'll have people who will major on that and minor on the prophecy that's given. Okay? So it's not worth debating. It's not worth fighting about. But you ought to have a preference. So, um, but there are people who write books. You know, this, this is a short passage. And there are volumes written on not only these four verses, but the next four after it. I mean, there are libraries full of the books that have been written. Straining at a gnat. Straining at a gnat, yes. So, um, but we'll, we'll be here for a while. We won't be here for a whole library full, but we'll be here for a while. Okay, so we have Daniel and Gabriel standing before him. And I believe they're literally standing there. But um, Daniel's been praying for some six hours, maybe nine, something like that. Long time. And Gabriel says some pretty interesting things to Daniel. Um, Verse 22 Daniel speaking, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. Now, very important what Gabriel says here. He says his purpose in coming is to give insight and understanding, not confusion and bewilderment. Right? I mean, what Daniel, what Gabriel is going to say, the purpose of God sending him is to give him understanding and insight into what's going to happen in the future. So, right off the bat, those who would say, you can't understand this stuff, it's not worth the studying, it's too complicated, no one really knows what it means, deny what Gabriel said, right? I mean, he said, I came so that you might understand this, not that you would be confused. So I don't know why people would say that you shouldn't spend time studying this, you can't understand it, when God explicitly through Gabriel says his purpose in sending him is so that you will understand it and you will gain understanding. So I believe that if, I mean, we have as much as God wanted to write down of what Gabriel said to Daniel right here in the passage. And so 
I believe that if God sent Gabriel so that Daniel could write this book and gain understanding, the purpose of writing the book is so that it could be preserved so that you and I could study it today and understand the same thing that Daniel understood. Now, that's just the way I am. I, you know, uh, it just makes sense to me that if an angel is sent by God from the throne of God at the command of God to give words, and we have those words, that those words are important and that we should be able to do the same thing that Daniel did, which is gain understanding. may not be perfect. I'm sure it wasn't perfect to Daniel. But there's something to be gained from studying this. And so we're going to spend our time doing just that. So Gabriel's words, the 70 weeks of Daniel that we'll get to, not this week, but next week, if the Lord wills, are given so that we might understand, along with Daniel. Otherwise, why would Daniel have written them down? Why would God have preserved the book of Daniel for 2,700 years now? So that we could study it. And so we have, and we will. Right. And it shows this cosmic battle that's taking place. And I think about the Lord appearing on the road to Emmaus in, in very much the same kind of way, where he opened up the script, the very scriptures. And yeah, Christ on the road to Emmaus started at the beginning. That's right. <laughs> which would have been the fall. Yeah. And it, before he ascended, he taught for 40 days, 50 days. Mm hmm. Right. You know, and it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of things going on, as you say. We have in Daniel the confirmation that the book written by Jeremiah is the word of God. I mean, way back in, in verse 2, where he said... Um, which was revealed as the word of God to Jeremiah the prophet. So the things that Jeremiah wrote down were the words of God given to Jeremiah that he might write them down. Now, what's the motivation of Daniel writing these things down? Not sure. I know why he wrote down the visions. He said so he would remember them. Remember, he got done with the vision, so he wrote it down so that he would remember it. And now here, years later, he, here comes Gabriel again to give him another bunch of understanding. And then there will be another angel in chapter 10 that walks with him all the way to the end of the book to give him more understanding. Maybe Gabriel, maybe not be. We're not given his name. So God 
specifically coming to Daniel to give him these words. Okay, and 20, um, verse 23 kind of goes with 22. So I want to read it. As the beginning of your supplication, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed to give you, to give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now, how fast does an angel move? That'd be a good question. Because if the command is given, then in my mind, I have this picture of God summoning Gabriel to his throne and then giving Gabriel the command to go and see Daniel when Daniel first begins to pray, some six or eight hours before this. And it takes Gabriel six or eight hours to get to Daniel. Angels aren't omnipresent like God is. They have to physically go somewhere. So how fast does an angel move? You know, science would tell us that there are stars that are emitting light that takes thousands of years to get to us. Think about this for a minute. And light moves at, what, 186,000 miles per second? So that's a long way. Don't, I'm not going to try and calculate that, but it's got a lot of zeros at the end of it. And I just imagine that the throne of God is beyond all that. And by the way, the argument that the earth has existed for billions of years is based partly upon that. Because if the stars are so far away that it takes thousands of years for the light to get here, then the earth had to be here for a long time, much longer than I think, for all that light to get here, right? Otherwise, you couldn't see the stars. And I'm just dumb enough to believe that God who created electromagnetism and the light that actually shines in here and comes from the sun and comes from the moon, which is really just a reflection, and comes from the stars, I imagine if he could create the stars, that he could create the light that was already shining on the earth. Now, I'm just dumb enough to believe that. But there are a lot of people who would disagree with me on that, who are true believers, even some of them, who would argue with me against that and say, no, 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 that's not how electromagnetism works. Well, how do they know? I mean, God's the one who created all that stuff that I studied a long time ago and was confused by. And so I believe he could make the light rays as well as he could make the actual star itself. Go ahead. Yeah, he says he's praying and it's the evening sacrifice. No, uh, and when you come to chapter 10, he has. He's been praying for three weeks. But here in chapter 9, all that we're given is this all happens in the same day. Don't know that. It doesn't say that. But that's kind of the way it looks. I mean, Daniel begins to pray. 
Um, he prays all day. He's wearied. And then this angel shows up. Because at the beginning of his prayer, now if it took that angel three weeks to get there, then it's really far, right? Now, well, uh, you're talking about chapter 10. It does take the angel three weeks in chapter 10. But the reason is because there's an evil angel standing between him and Gabriel that he can't get, be- get by. And then actually at the end of his prophecy to Daniel, he says, Daniel, I, I got to go. I got to go back and fight this bad angel and guide the kings of Persia so they'll let you go. They'll let the people of Israel go. So, I mean, we'll talk about that when we get there. It's very, I mean, the things that are given here, if you just read them and think about them, are fascinating. So this angel takes a long time, six or eight hours. Gabriel bringing the message of God. Doesn't say he's hindered in any way. He just, just takes that long to get there. The throne of God is a long, long way away. Yeah. Men who were being inspired to write the scripture by and reading other scripture and even looking at what they were writing and just going. Yeah, they uh, all these prophets and the one who probably wondered the most would have been Moses because he's the one who wrote about the Messiah to come. First, he's the first. Well. I mean, obviously, in Genesis 3, you have an indication, but actually writing that a person person would come and be the Messiah, Moses is the first one who writes that, the prophet, right? And you remember the question they asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? And he said, no, I'm not worthy to even stoop down and untie his shoe. And then they asked Christ, are you the prophet? And he doesn't answer them directly, but basically he says yes. Yeah. Yeah, so the, even the angels don't know the plan. No. The angels don't know. But for faithfulness. How to describe it? Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating. I don't think Gabriel knew what he was getting ready to tell Daniel until God told it to him. And then you have this angel in chapters 10 and 11 that says, literally, he's reading the scroll, which is the plan of God written down before the creation of the world, and he's actually reading from the scroll to Daniel. 
And he doesn't know. I mean, what's, what's beyond what he's reading? Would he know? I don't, I, we don't get an indication that they would know. So even the angels don't know all that God is going to do. They will, obviously. Yeah, um, the only reason I believe that Michael knows he's got to go fight Satan during the tribulation is because it's written in the book. <laughs> and, I mean, obviously they know what's written in the book, but he doesn't know when it is or how long that battle's going to take, or, but he wins. He knows that. But he's still got to go fight. Way ahead of myself. I mean, it's just it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about and we're given enough details where you can think about it intelligently that you can have conversations such as Andy and I are having this morning it's worth studying it's worth walking through now there are other things oh yeah well you know you can read the books of other men I don't have a problem with that as long as you read the scriptures also, so that you can discern whether what they're writing makes any sense. And I can remember, I mean, I, I read it last, yesterday. I was reading back one of my old lessons from when I taught Daniel previously. And in there I say, someone gave me a paper by somebody. At that time, it was a thesis. It was later put into a book that challenged me on chapter 8 that said that Horn was the Antichrist. And, I mean, literally, and it didn't represent anything that came out of the Greek kingdom. And so I, I say, I read it, I looked at all his arguments, and then I discarded it because it made no sense. And he didn't write about everything that was in the scripture, he only wrote about what fit his scheme. But there are other stuff that denied his scheme. So I discarded it. You have to do that. There are a lot of stuff out there that you'll read that you ought to discard because it's not congruent with all of the scripture. It's congruent with part of the scripture. And then it contradicts other things. Okay, off the soapbox. All right, there are other things in this, um, these two verses, 22 and 23, that kind of caught my attention um, the first was about how long it took the angel to get there. The other is that you notice the angel angel says to Daniel, part of the message of God is that he is highly esteemed. He's respected. He is admired by God. Now, that's quite a statement. But you remember what we said at the beginning of this chapter and we kind of thought about who Daniel was, when he was raised, what he understood, what he's done for 68 years in captivity, how faithful he stayed to God, how he, God blessed him and he rose up. This is, the, this is the most righteous man on the planet at the time in which he's writing this. I mean, you have Ezekiel, you have Jeremiah, Jeremiah has died. Ezekiel were unsure about. He 
he would have been the same age as Daniel, I believe, probably born the same year. So he'd be an old dude too, because Daniel is probably 80 plus in this passage. So after praying for six hours, I, I would be tired, and I'm not 80. So I'm sure he was exhausted. So, um, but he's highly esteemed by God. And he's praying, think about it, he's praying according to the book of Leviticus. That's what's informing his prayer. So Daniel's just doing what God instructed a long time ago when Moses wrote the book of Leviticus. So um, he's, he's a very, very faithful guy. And then the last thing here, and I had to think about this for a while. At the end of verse 23, he says, I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. So I looked at four or five or six different translations. Every one of them says the same thing. Vision. Now, I read the book and I read to the end of the chapter and I don't see a vision. I mean, there's no vision here. Daniel doesn't see anything. Gabriel just describes what's going to happen. There's no vision. So what's he talking about? And you're kind of at a loss until you realize that he says, not just look at the vision, he says, pay attention to the message right? And give heed to the vision or the other way around. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Give heed to the message. Now I see the message because that's given by Gabriel in the next four verses. So there is a message and he kind of equates it to the vision. And that word message, that one I could do some research on and I did look at what does the message mean and message um, would you could translate it as word give heed to the words that I'm going to speak give heed to the matter about which I'm going to talk about give heed to the things that I'm going to describe so that's the message so that's I believe when he says um, gain understanding of the vision, he's not talking about something Daniel's going to see. He's talking about something that Gabriel's going to say. And the vision is equivalent to the message. It's the word of God that God gave to Gabriel to give to Daniel to give to us. And so there is no vision here. It's just a message. It's just a word from God about what is going to happen in the future. And it's given not as a riddle, but also not straightforwardly. Well, pretty straightforwardly, but it'll take us five or six or seven weeks to go through those four verses 
because you got to uncover some things. You got to unearth some things and you got to do some research. You have to look at history and put the pieces together. And we'll do that so that Daniel couldn't do that. All he had were the words given to him by God. But we can look back at some things that have been said. And Daniel may have understood more than we think he did, or some people think he did. Now, I looked at the last time that I taught this. I told you that, right? 2015 and 2016. So not that long ago. We're in lesson week 37. The last time when I taught this, I was in week 39. So we've gone a little faster. But it also took 66 weeks last time. So this time it's probably going to take a little longer. Because I know a little more as we get into some of these things. So we probably have another half year in Daniel. Just so you won't be thinking we're going to finish the book tomorrow, right? It's probably going to be, if the Lord wills, August, September, before we get through with Daniel. And then we'll decide where we'll go next. Um, But anyway, we're going to be here for a while. These next four verses, let me just read them and then we'll quit for today. Um, In verse 24, and this is what people have all kinds of interpretations. Gabriel speaking to Daniel, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of the sin, of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and all the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Okay, four short verses. Simple, right? Seventy weeks divided into three sections. Sixty-two, and then seven, and then one. So we'll spend some time walking through all of this. And I'll give you a a chart, a graph that I have that starts at Nebuchadnezzar, could go earlier, but I started at Nebuchadnezzar and lays out the 70 weeks. And we'll talk about it, look at it, see if it makes any sense. But that's not for a couple of weeks. But 
If the Lord wills, we'll walk through all these things and gain understanding. Thanks for your time.